Greetings to you and welcome into another edition of The Intersection with conversation about a variety of topics, including news, information, and lifestyles approached from a Christian worldview perspective. Well, first of all, on this edition, you'll be hearing from Chris Hodges of Alabama's Church of the Highlands, who offers insight into living and speaking truth with grace based on the life of Daniel. Plus, from Parenting Today's Teens, it's Mark Gregston offering direction for parents as they navigate the changing cultural landscape affecting teenagers. Then, with some encouragement to pursue a biblical concept and experience of rest for the soul, it's Curtis Zachary of Nashville's Church of the City. And coming up on this edition of The Intersection, the grandson of the late Billy Graham, Will Graham, offering some information on an upcoming film exploring the post-war life of Olympian and prisoner of war Louis Zamperini, who gave his life to Christ at a Billy Graham crusade. Will Graham plays his grandfather in the movie. Plus, Stephen Black of First Stone Ministries shares about a new survey indicating a large majority of those who are seeking help to overcome same-sex attraction actually experience the freedom they seek. Finally, some back-to-school material from a physics professor at Auburn University, Michael Bozak, who has written a book that is designed to prepare incoming students and parents for the college experience, including matters related to the Christian faith. This is the intersection of production of The Meeting House, and I'm Bob Crittenden. Chris Hodges is the founding and senior pastor of Alabama's Church of the Highlands. He's authored a book called The Daniel Dilemma, How to Stand Firm and Love Well in a Culture of Compromise, in which he offers insight into living and speaking truth with grace based on the life of the biblical character Daniel. Here now is Chris Hodges. He was in a Babylonian pagan culture that did not love his God, and he never bowed to the Babylonian gods, never never turned in any way from the living God, the one that he served. But this is the coolest part, Bob. He had influence into that culture at the same time. Most Christians think you pretty much have to pick one or the other. You're either going to serve God and stay faithful to the Bible and no one will like you, or in order to reach people, we'll have to bend the scriptures a bit and, you know, emphasize not so much the truth parts and just really the love parts. You know, and, and honestly, that's not true. Uh, you, you, that's why the subtitle, you can stand firm and love well at the same time, and that's what we intended to do. And so people, you know, people feel like they're in this, this dilemma in culture. I want to honor God. I want to influence people. How do I do it? That's the dilemma. And so really there were, there were a number of things, um, I, uh, including this message series, but also in culture where we're seeing this rapid shift away from God in, in, in all parts of culture that I really felt like the time was right to, to write this book now. And I wanted you to elaborate just a bit, if you would, about the culture of Daniel's day and the culture that we're experiencing today. Some similarities, no doubt. Well, exactly. And, and what's interesting is, is that that book of the Bible, Daniel, is, is, is a historical book, but it's not in the history section of the Old Testament. It's in the prophetic section. It's in the area where all the prophet books are, which I personally believe that's the, that the Holy Spirit did that on purpose, because I believe that, that what happened, the principles from Daniel's day are prophetic for, for our day of how to live in this, in this pagan culture. And it, it's basically, it's, it's a, a, a pagan culture basically is a man first, God second. So they'll recognize God or God's but they really worship themselves above God, and every pagan culture has done that. 
So you'll even see in even in some Christian circles, quote unquote Christian circles, uh, where uh, man feels like they know better than God, and so they'll change parts of the Bible to fit what they believe. Well, he's no longer your God if you're going to rewrite uh, what he's given us. And so I think we're experiencing that in a variety of different ways. Um, and and basically what I did in the book was just we took a journey right through the the book of Daniel and showed all the similarities of what he dealt with and what we're dealing with today. What were some of the ingredients of Daniel's walk that really enabled him to stand strong in the midst of the cultural influences in his day? Well, you know, uh, I, and I try to highlight this, it, it is, it's the balance. In fact, on the cover of the book, we have these scales. And on one, on one scale, it has the Bible. On the other scale, it has the heart. And, and it's the ability to do what Jesus did too, by the way. Jesus perfectly modeled this. It says in John 1.14 that Jesus came into the world full of grace and truth. So he was able to extend, hey, I don't condemn you. I, I love you. I love you just like I'm not going to stay that way either. We're going to let grace invite us to be free so that the truth can set us free. And so that's what Daniel did. The genius of Daniel was to be able to be a truth person and a grace person at the same time. And that's a tough balance sometimes. Um, because the truth people say, hey, we're not talking about the truth enough. But you have to connect before you correct. No one's going to listen to you. So the goal isn't to be right, but effective, to win their hearts. We don't want to just be right and no one follows it. So we have to do like Jesus did and Daniel did. But then there's a whole other side, Bob, of, of believers who think, hey, we've got to set the Bible aside in the name of love. And even in some ways, thinking they love people better than God does. When really the most loving thing our God does is call us out of our sin. He points it out not to condemn us. He points it out to free us, to help us be free from that sin. So Jesus came into the world full of grace and truth. So you can go through all these stories in the Bible, like in Jesus' day, like, like Zacchaeus, the, the thief uh, who had climbed the sycamore tree. And Jesus' first words to, to him were the truth. Hey, you're a thief. His first words were, hey, let's go to lunch. And that's the beauty of it. Jesus connected with him, went to lunch. We don't know what happened in the lunch, but, but 10 verses later in Luke 19, Zacchaeus is coming out of that lunch, you know, giving back everything he had ever stolen. So, so we, 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 want to do the same, we want to do the same thing in our culture is learn how to stand, stand for our truth while extending that grace at the same time. Chris Hodges here on The Intersection. You can find out more by going to the website churchofthehighlands.com. Next up on the Intersection Podcast, it's Mark Gregston, Executive Director of Heartlight Ministries and speaker on the radio program Parenting Today's Teens. In our recent conversation, he discussed material relative to his latest book, Raising Teens in a Contrary Culture. This is Mark Gregston now. You were talking about these different elements that are, as you might say, are, are germane or pertinent to moms and dads moms you you gave the exhortation to to back off from lecturing and to uh to dads you give the exhortation to try to stop trying to fix things so <laughs> in the in the in the practical give and take if you're telling for instance a parent not to do these things how can facil or how can communication be facilitated and relationship built then 
Well, you know, I, I think it's, it's learning this. Instead of a, a parent feeling like they have to talk all the time, that maybe what they do is say, you know what, I'm going to work on my listening skills, which means that I need to listen a lot more than I'm, than I'm speaking. And that's, and that's hard for a lot of us because we have, we have begun to think that it's all about words, and it's not. But I've got to move from teaching to training. I've got to move from them being dependent on us to help establishing their independence. I have to move from me making all the decisions to now training them how to make decisions, from me being in control to them taking control, from me giving all the answers to now me asking all the questions. I mean, it's a, it's a shift and a mindset change that's desperately needed. It moves from talking to listening and telling to sharing and from lecture to discussion. And it's, and it's not about what you do anymore. It's now more about who you are when you move into the teen years, which means this. I've got to quit sharing so much information, which has worked really well in a teaching model, and I've got to start sharing more wisdom. And anybody says, well, I, I don't know what wisdom is. Well, one, Scripture tells us, if any of you lacks wisdom, ask of God, and he will give it to you. The other thing is he's poured out his Scripture. And, and go back to the book of Proverbs and look at how people relate with one another. And there is so much wisdom in, in those phrases that encourage engagement and listening and talking and, and seeking counsel that it, it, it moves us from demanding perfection to now allowing and encouraging relationships that are okay with imperfection. And it changes us from feeling like the Christian life always has to be taught because now it can be caught. And that caught is by spending time one with another and engaging in such a way that, that I give them opportunity for, to observe me, to reflect about things I talk about, and to experience things with me, which is the way that people transfer wisdom. Mark Gregston joining us today here on The Meeting House on Faith Radio. The book is called Raising Teens in a Contrary Culture, and our conversation today has been centered on that area, by and large, of communication. In the next, say, 60 seconds or so, give you a little lightning round here, but what are some of the other areas that you address in this new book, just in summary? Well, I, I think it's how to engage, how to have experiences. I tell people, go make some memories before you lose yours. And it's and it really <laughs> is saying, folks, we, we've got our, the time to spend with our kids is now. They just get busier and busier and busier, and they will eliminate us from their schedule when it gets so packed. And so if we become irrelevant, then we won't be around to influence them and to pass on the traditions of our family. I think the other thing is, as even for older parents and to, and for grandparents that are that are listening, is, is that we have the opportunity to leave a legacy in the life of these kids, to, to engage with them in such a way that, that they remember us far beyond the life that we had on this earth so that we can continue to influence their life and, and their families for generations to come. Well, something very interesting and subtle here in our conversation as you talk about your own experience of being a parent and grandparent and providing some words of encouragement. I know that you've been doing Parenting Today's Teens on the radio. It's been, I think, it's well over 10 years, isn't it? It is. It's 12 years. All right. And we're, and, and we're launching a new uh, newsletter and, and Facebook 
uh, deal called grandparenting to these teens. Just because I see the need for grandparents wow. yep. to be involved. You know, I don't think God's keeping grandparents around just to move to Arizona and Florida to play shuffleboard. I think he's keeping us all around because we're desperately needed in the lives of our grandkids who are teens. And uh, so we're launching that at the same time with this book. Mark Gregston here on The Intersection. You can learn more at parentingtodaysteens.org. Next, it's Curtis Zachary, teaching pastor at Church of the City in Nashville. In our recent conversation, he talked about a biblical perspective of rest as he relates in the book called Soul Rest, Reclaim Your Life, Return to Sabbath. Here now is Curtis Zachary. When I look at this command in in Exodus 28, number four on the list of commandments, honor the Sabbath uh, and keep it holy. You know, this is something that we have in our processes as Christians and followers of the way of Jesus hope to do in order to please God by our actions. But I think one of the important distinctions is we need to see that the commandments, all of the commandments, are not just rules to be followed so that we can please God, but he presented them as pathways for humanity to find connection and fulfillment by him. So if we reframe that understanding, when he presents that we need to honor the Sabbath and keep it holy, he is saying this to us because he knows that there's something to be found for humanity in this practice. So that starts us at a different place. Well, for me anyway, different than what I had always uh, experienced and learned. And so what it took me to was, you know, the first instance in the Bible when it talks about rest is God on the seventh day after creation, it says that he finished his work and that he rested. And it begs the question, hopefully for us, a God who is the God of all creation, why would he need to rest? He's not physically tired. He wouldn't need to take a physical rest. So there has to be something more to this rest than just physical rest. And what we see, it's very fascinating to me. In Exodus 31, uh, it says that God uh, shows us this model uh, for humanity. It says that he rests in Exodus 31 to show the world that this is what they are to do. But then right after that, it says that he rested and he was refreshed. Now, that word was very interesting to me because, again, he's not physically tired, but yet he found refreshment in his rest, in his own rest. And what I believe we see here is this picture that God looks back at everything he made by his hand, everything that he made, he was satisfied with. He said, the work is done. The work is enough. It is good. I'm finished with it. And this is a picture that he's showing humanity. This is how we live, work for six days. And on the seventh day, it's not just to take a physical break, but it's to remember and keep the day holy by saying all of those days of work, all the things that I'm doing don't ultimately bring true value, significance, identity. My, all of those things are truly found in his work. Now you fast forward to the New Testament and that verse you referenced in Hebrews 4, it's really fascinating. It says that there is this entering into a Sabbath rest. Well, what is the rest he's talking about? Well, Jesus, bloody and beaten on the cross, right before he dies takes a deep breath and yells out the words, it is finished. That's how it's translated in English most often. But those words really kind of lean into this thought, which is very similar to what we see in the creation account. It's him saying, the work is done. I am satisfied. Everything that needs to be done is now done. And the work, of course, now that he's speaking about is the satisfaction of the penalty for sin. So what he's saying to us is there is a rest 
that comes after his work because of his grace. Now we rest because of his significant work. And like he said before, uh, your identity is not found in what you can do to earn. It is through my work being done. And that's true in the New Testament as well. Jesus says, it's my work. Ephesians 2, 8, 9 says, come to me, or it says, uh, it's by grace you've been saved through faith, not from works, so that no man can boast. That's a beautiful bit of good news. But then it mm-hmm. says right after that, for we are God's workmanship, created for good works. So I know that was very wordy, but ultimately what it leans to for me is this connection between the rest that we find in the Old Testament and the New Testament, all being connected to God's intention for us to have rest in our souls, not just a surface rest, but a deep soulish rest that comes from the contentment, knowing that he is enough. Curtis Zachary here on The Intersection. You can find out more through the website soulrestbook.com. Well, this is The Intersection Podcast. It's a weekly production of The Meeting House, and you can find out more through the website meetinghouseonline.info or go to the programming section at faithradio.org. At the Meeting House homepage, you'll find a link to the Media Center marked Meeting House On Demand, through which you can listen to or download full conversations with recent guests on the Intersection podcast. Also, you can subscribe to the Intersection and have it delivered to your podcast receiving software, including iTunes, each week. The Intersection podcast is also available through the Faith Radio app. Learn more through the Faith Radio website. And through the Meeting House homepage, you'll find links to two blogs. One is The Three, with three stories of relevance to the Christian community. The other is The Front Room, with devotional thoughts and commentary from the Meeting House. And you can follow me on Twitter and access the Meeting House Facebook page. There's also a link to video content. Again, that website address is meetinghouseonline.info, or visit the programming section at faithradio.org. Will Graham is Vice President of the Billy Graham Evangelistic Association and Executive Director of the Billy Graham Training Center at The Cove in Asheville, North Carolina. He discussed with me material relative to the upcoming film Unbroken, Path to Redemption, which portrays a portion of the life story of Olympian and POW Louis Zamperini, including his salvation at a Billy Graham crusade. Will Graham plays the role of his grandfather, Billy Graham, in the movie. From a recent conversation, this is Will Graham. He survived the war only to come home and trying to and, and got married. Um, you know, um, he, he started drinking, trying to self-medicate from PTSD, uh, which they didn't really understand back then. And um, he started self-medicating with alcohol. And he, he thought getting married would do it. He thought if he could find a job, that would do it. If he could just start to run again and become an Olympian, that that would do it. But he was still suffering with PTSD, and um, he became a very selfish, inward person. And uh, these are in his own words. And uh, he was just a, a bad guy. And uh, he loved his wife. And, and But in the first movie, you think, oh, everything's good. Uh, when the first movie, Unbroken, with Angelina Jolie directing it, you think, oh, everything's great. He made it good, you know, end of the story. Actually, that's when everything started to fall apart. Um, that's when it did become broken. Um, he was very much broken in life and um, couldn't do anything to save his uh, marriage. And uh, because of a persistent wife, he would go to the Billy Graham Crusade in 1949 against his wishes and uh, his wife's wishes, that is, and uh, went against his own. And then, but he would end up giving his life to Christ. Um, he, he was running out, and he, he said the next thing he knew, he was down at the front get, crying, giving his life to Christ. He said, I don't know how it got down there. 
Um, so it's an amazing story, and we're so grateful for the success of the first movie with Angelina, uh, Angelina Jolie. Because of her success, it gave us the opportunity to do the, the second movie and just to focus on that part. So we're very grateful for Matt Bear and his persistence in getting this uh, second half of the story done. Louis was always mad at God. He was mad that uh, his plane went down. He felt like God let him down. You know, like He felt like God was the enemy. And that God didn't like him and therefore let his plane crash. God didn't like him, made him suffer across that raft uh, for over 40 days. And then uh, God didn't like him because he got captured by the Japanese. And on top of that, he got tortured by him, beaten up and beyond recognition. And um, and then only to come home and, you know, have his marriage fall apart. And then he became an alcoholic. Um he had nightmares, and he just said, you know, God didn't love me. God's my enemy. And that's where so many people are right now. Um, but there's a lot of people that they're angry with God. They think God's their enemy. But then he soon realized that it was God who kept them alive so he could use them and have a purpose for them. God kept them alive because God still had a purpose for them. And uh, when Louis found out that it was Christ all along, all that time, when he was in all the despair, Christ was right there beside him. Uh, sustaining him to help him get through it because he should have been dead many times but god still had a plan and purpose for him and he realized that and his heart was broken and uh this time a good broken he was broken at the end of his desperation and he reached out for christ and uh um he accepted the lord jesus christ and had a new beginning a fresh start he god just didn't glue pieces back in louis life this was a brand new start in life. He had a fresh start, a new beginning. His marriage was new. Uh, his life was new. And uh, he spent the next 60 year, years of his life uh, giving God the glory and telling people about the Lord Jesus Christ. So it's one of the best stories of forgiveness I've ever seen. Will Graham here on The Intersection. The film will be in theaters beginning on September 14th, and you can learn more by going to unbrokenfilm.com. Next, here on The Intersection, it's Stephen Black, Executive Director of First Stone Ministries and author of the book Freedom Realized, Fighting Freedom from Homosexuality and Living a Life Free from Labels. He reported on a new study that showed a significant percentage of people seeking true freedom in Christ from homosexuality or same-sex attraction discovered that freedom. He also addressed other matters relative to the LGBT agenda. From that conversation, this is Stephen Black. The uh, effectiveness survey that First Stone put out was um, conducted in 2015-2016. We had 1,200 client folders, and um, in 2012, when Alan Chambers began to say that nobody changes, um, made us go uh, ask the question, well, where are all the people that we've served over the last 25 years? And we wanted to find out where they were. Bottom line is... We were able to get this survey, contact 500 people of that. Almost half uh, were able to fill out the survey. Getting anybody to fill out a survey that long is, is pretty difficult. But we got 185, and it showed conclusively that 72 to 73% found lasting freedom, went on to live lives fully dedicated to Christ without any kind of labels. And just looking at some of the different areas that you uh, had response, 88% of participants in First Stone Ministries over 25 years of support group ministry reported finding lasting freedom. 66 to 88% of survey respondents who participated in support groups believed it was very helpful 
to their spiritual growth. Now, these percentages vary because of different types of support groups. But even for those that may not have experienced the the total transformation, to me, Stephen, that doesn't sound like that there's reason to give up and seek another path. Well, I wouldn't either, especially since the Scripture teaches otherwise. Yeah. When, uh, you know, Paul says things like uh, comparing it to an Olympic race, you know, in First Corinthians, Corinthians chapter 9, and when he, he compares it to Tim and, and Paul talking to Timothy about comparing this to a war and being a good soldier, and then the Revelation itself talking about that those who get to go to heaven and taste of the things of heaven are overcomers. So this has always been about a faith that is prevailing, and, and even in John's epistle, uh, in uh, chapter 5, he says, this is what overcomes the world. It's a, it's a faith that is prevailing, a faith that, cons- that is consistent, not you know a super faith that gets what you want, but a faith that allows you to be consistent in a devoted relationship with Jesus Christ. And what happens, as people don't understand this, is that over time, if you really do cleanse yourself and separate yourself from these, these honestly, these inputs of, of sexual brokenness into your life, the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit, called the Spirit of Grace, grace actually changes the internal world. The problem with, like, these Exodus and Revoice people is I know for a fact that most of these people still continue to dabble with pornography in their own confessions. They continue to still go into places where there is a, a spirit and, and a, a, an atmosphere of lust, well, nobody can go into those kind of atmospheres and, and dabbling into sin when you're looking at pornography and fantasy and expect there to be change. And yet they would have you believe, and this is the ironic thing, is they would have you believe that their homosexual sexual behavior is equal to eating a piece of shrimp and or that their that their their longings and their their desires on this side of the cross is fixed so god must bless them and that the god of the creation the god of the universe that has made trillions and billions and billions and billions and trillions of of galaxies out there and within our own galaxy you know trillion 10 trillion stars cannot help a person with their internal uh, organization and desires called orientation. And I beg to differ, and Paul did too. He said in the last days, men would have a form of godliness. So they have religion, but they deny the power. And so they're denying the power of grace to do this transformative work. And actually the scripture warns us and tells us right there in Second Timothy 3 to withdraw ourselves from people that teach such things. So this is where we're at in the church. Stephen Black here on The Intersection. Find out more at firststone.org or freedomrealized.org. Finally, on this edition of The Intersection podcast, it's Michael Bozak, a professor of physics at Auburn University. He shared some information about himself as well as his book, Street Smart Advice to College Students from a Professor's Point of View. From that conversation, this is Michael Bozak. I was a seminary student at one time, right in the middle of my graduate career. And when I got to seminary, they were, and I was a theology student, 
my theology professors were talking about all these complex things like the Trinity. How can you be three but yet one? And the hypostatic union, that's the integration of of God and man and, the, and Jesus Christ. And how, how can you possibly explain those things? And I could tell the theologians were struggling with that, of course. Nobody can really understand that. It's, it's just way beyond us. But they were, these things were similar to what I was learning in science. And so the triple point analogy to the Trinity is a somewhat simple analogy. Uh, some of your listeners have probably heard this, the fact that uh, you can take a substance such as water, that's the most common example, and it exists as solid, liquid, and gas, and you can get it to a particular uh, thermodynamic point, meaning pressure and temperature, where all three of those phases coexist at equilibrium at one time. So they're all together at one time. There's interconnections between all the three phases. The you know, molecules are kind of going from solid to liquid to gas and backwards and forwards. And I made an analogy of that to how you can have the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, at least mechanically, you know, in, involved in the three and one at the same time, because all of these three phases are water, but yet each of these phases are different. Solid is different from liquid, is different from gas. They have different personalities, but yet they're the same in essence. And I'm sure you have all sorts of stories to tell about how you as a science professor actually see the compatibility of science and your Christian faith. Yeah, it's always, you know, people ask me that question a lot, and my answer is always the same. And science just enhances, and I see more of the glory of God. Uh, it enhances my faith. It buttresses my faith. And, you know, I'm one that can look at something and say, I can see the teeming billions and billions of atoms working, you know, and I'm going, geez, this is, this is absolutely amazing. And I've never lost my kind of childlike faith in science, you know, and, you know, I knew what I wanted to do in ninth grade and it's pretty much what I've done in life, you know, God willing and thank, thankful to God for all the opportunities I've had. But, you know, we're, we're still, I'm still like a kid in the sandbox looking mm. at all this majesty and mystery and, uh, you know, that, that just, you know, I, at the end of my day, I'm kind of kneeling down and saying, you know, thank you, Lord, <laughs> for what a wonderful career to be able to study you at this level of complexity and still be absolutely blown away by you. You really provide some insight into really the totality of that college experience. So this is really, if you could say, a comprehensive guide to a student as he or she embarks on that, that college experience. Would that be an accurate assessment? Yeah, it's, uh, it's really what God laid in my heart to do. I've been in colleges all my life. I mean, it took me 12 years to get through college. I was a slow learner. But all these degrees you had to rack up to be a college physics professor and then a postdoc. And then I worked in industry. I worked at Silicon Valley for many years at Intel Corporation, the people that make all your computers. And so I've been involved in, in colleges all my life. And when I became a professor, you know, I've, you know, I've been doing this for 20 years here or more, and, and I'm finding common mistakes of students and Christians. I really want to help Christian students 
avoid the giant speed bump called the freshman year where they get way behind the ball. They come to college really unprepared. Um, the competitive situation here at the larger colleges is usually much higher than their high schools were. And I have a lot of advice in there also for, for parents. I think parents get more out of this book than students do. Usually you, you put a book in a student's face and they'll kind of resist, you know, but the parents are saying, wow, let me, I mean, this is, this is an, uh, a guide written by an expert who's been there and he's telling me what college life is like today and how my son or daughter can do better, in fact, even thrive in that environment. So he's handling the cultural, the spiritual, the academic, just the day-to-day things that you don't do. Michael Bozak here on The Intersection. Learn more at his website at mikebozak.com. We're nearing the end of this week's edition of the Intersection Podcast. It's a weekly production of The Meeting House. You can find out more through meetinghouseonline.info or the programming section at faithradio.org. Also, The Intersection Podcast is available through the Faith Radio app. You can find out more at that website. Through the Meeting House homepage, there is a link to the Media Center marked Meeting House On Demand. You can also subscribe to The Intersection and have it delivered to your podcast receiving software, including iTunes, each week. Two blogs are accessible. One is The Three with three stories of relevance to the Christian community. The other is The Front Room with devotional thoughts and commentary from The Meeting House. And you can follow me on Twitter and access The Meeting House Facebook page. Plus, there's a link to video content. Again, that website address is meetinghouseonline.info or go to the programming section at faithradio.org. Thanks for joining me for this edition of The Intersection Podcast. I'm Bob Crittenden.